listening to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We bring you the latest from thought leaders in financial literacy and behavioral economics to help you develop and deliver your financial literacy program. I'm Doretta Thompson, and today we're exploring investment traps, borrowing to invest, and the fear of missing out. And I'm speaking with CPA, portfolio manager, and author Larry Short. Larry, thanks for dropping by. Oh, it's my pleasure. So tell me, what's an investment trap? What does it look like? What does it smell like? How do we know? Yeah, so it's really hard to uh, uh, to spot often ahead of time. Um, that's why there are traps, because it's, it's one of those things that intelligent people fall into. Um, although a lot of novices get caught with it as well. So, uh, and where it arises from is that uh, it's when you are being sold something. So you're being told that this is the latest, greatest. It's uh, the, 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 the best mousetrap. It is the best invention that has been found. It is a way that we can either save on tax or we can um, get you retired richer, faster, better uh, than before. And often it is uh, delivered by a salesperson of some sort, um, and and usually uh, you are lacking in either knowledge, interest, or time, and most often it's time to be able to process um, what is being proposed to you. Um, so these traps have arisen over the years, um, and and they seem like a good idea at the time. It seems to be one of those things that. You look at it and go, yeah, it seems to make sense. You know, all the things are are, are in place, and uh, and in hindsight, uh, when they do get sprung, when they do blow up, um, it's often difficult to recover your money, if at all. Can you give me some examples? Well, the classic one, the one, the one that's the most extreme, is the borrow to invest one, and that one arises usually um, in the last vestiges of a stock market run. So traditionally, the stock stock markets have run in cycles of about every four to five years. Um, that is, the stock markets tend to rise coming out of a recession, uh, run for four or five years, and then uh, go back into a recession again. And that's a pretty consistent um, model that has, has worked right up until 2000, and um, I guess it would be uh, 2012, 2013. So... What's unusual about the business cycle that we're in right now is that we haven't had a tr- downturn in 10 years, right? So 2008 was the last time we had a stock market downturn. But prior to that, we had one in uh, 2002, and prior to that, it was in um, 1998, and prior, right? So it used to run about every four years. So, so just let's let's just pretend for a moment that normalcy uh, reigns supreme in the future, and we go back to that cycle. So what has tended to happen is that at the end of the cycle, that is when Markets have given the best performance in the uh, in the last five years, four years. Uh, individuals uh, come out, who salespeople, and say, "Look, if you had only invested in stocks five years ago, here's the evidence of what would you would have. You could have borrowed money against your house. You could have borrowed money that the bank would lend it to you. You could have boarded on your uh, home equity line of credit, whatever. And you, if you invested in the market, then you would have earned enough to pay off." your initial investments, uh, your, your initial loan, and on top of that, you would have had a tax break along the way. It sounds great. It sounds really smart. Um, unfortunately, it tends to, to, to arise, or these plans tend to arise just as the market's about to turn down, mm-hmm. right? So that's what has, has been the trap in the, in the past. And as well, 
it has tended to, to arise with people who are novice, people, uh, people who have not invested before. Um, and that's where that fear of missing out kind of comes in. So it's a combination of the two. It's, you know, headlines tend to look best at the end of a business cycle. Uh, this is what I wrote in the book. I have this, this chapter five, uh, which my, uh, my, my wife edited it, and it was, it was the most difficult part for her to edit because it's long. And what it did w- was in that chapter, it, uh, it uh, presented headlines out of newspapers for when the markets were at all-time highs and when they were at all-time lows. At all-time highs, the headlines tend to be absolutely glorious. The world is un- unfolding as it should. Um, you know, the university is um, um, being generous to us all. Um, interest rates are relatively low. Uh, stock markets are booming. Uh, unemployment is uh, low. Optimism is in the air. And this is the most dangerous time in a stock market whenever you see those things, which sounds weird. It sounds It's actually counterintuitive, right? It doesn't make sense that you should not be investing when things look great. You should be investing when things look horrible. I've heard that, uh, that the stock market is the only thing that people stop buying when it's on sale. That's correct. So we had a, a, a discussion uh, uh, yesterday uh, with a chap talking about you know, the effect of sale prices is that if you go into a store and you see that, that a pair of jeans was $100, but you can get them for $60, oh, I better buy some. But if you – so I asked him afterwards. I said, why is there not the same perception when it comes to the stock market, that if the stock market falls 40 percent, people don't go, wow, it's on sale. We should be buying. It's because of other factors, um, something else called recency bias. But one of the things that – one of those factors is the headlines look horrible when the stock market is down. And people would get afraid. So um, one of the things that we do in our practice is that we, we are called um, uh, contrarian investment advisors, which means that when the stock market is high, we worry. And when the stock market is low, we smile, right? And we, uh, that's the time to be investing. But it makes our job harder because we're not going with the flow, right? We're kind of contrary to the flow. So that's the part. So in one of those contrarian indicators that we've used in the past has been how many times do we get a phone call saying we'd like a second opinion because we've just been offered this program where uh, I can borrow money at a really cheap rate and I can invest it in the stock market and I'm going to get this tax break. And, and when we saw that in 2008, for example, um, that told us, oh, wow, we're getting to the end of this, this uh, cycle. Uh, and we saw the same sort of thing in 2000 and in uh, 1998 as well. So the trap is that it seemed like a really good idea at the time. You're, you know, the headlines in the papers and the like are looking glorious. The economy looks like it's strong. It looks like a good time to be investing. I'm going to get a tax break with it. And, um, um, uh, and you know, if I just hold in and stay in over time, I will make money on this. And the unfortunate uh, situation is that w- – that most often people do this when the markets are at all-time highs. If you're ever going to consider it, you know, and if and and you should only consider it is if it is part of your business plan, if it's part of your retirement plan, your financial plan, then you do it after the markets have crashed. But the vast majority of people can't do it then because the headlines are so horrible. So that's one example of a trap. Are there right. other kind of well, classic traps that well, people should watch yeah, for? Yeah, so when I was putting together the topic, I realized that, you know, what is in common with all of the traps is, the, is that you are sold this uh, trap, and you are sold by a person. So it's not so much that you should be 
uh, try to be aware in our busy lifestyle of these traps arising. It is, it's actually falls back to how you find somebody who's trustworthy in the industry to who can look out for these traps for you. Because the technical details sometimes get really involved. I mean, it was things, there, there was another one, um, actually it was two others I can think of quickly. Uh, one was um, an art um, donation program. And this arose back in, um, I'm trying to remember the year, I think it was the first time I saw it was in 1999. And the program was that um, the particular company that was putting together the plan uh, would buy art from uh, basically starving artists around the world, and they would buy it wholesale. So, so they're not going to buy just one print, they're going to buy a thousand prints. And they could buy this thousand prints for 30% of the value, 20% of the value of the actual print. Then um, uh, you would then donate the print to a charity. And you would donate, of course, get a full tax receipt of 100% of the value of it because you're doing a single-person donation of this print. Sounds logical. Sounds right. The thing is that there was no delay in time between the time that you bought it and the time that it was actually donated. That happened on the same day. So then you start looking at the reasonableness factor of it. And would CRA, uh, Canada Revenue Agency, actually approve a deduction um, that was based on the fact that you bought and sold within a couple of hours, effectively, or even the same day, um, something that was uh, sold to you at 30% and then donated at 100% in order to get a credit uh, for tax purposes, so we uh, struggled with this, and and um, and within our industry, um, we always have to look to to ensure that the particular investment is approved, and these people are registered, and like, and and it passed all of the all of the tests, the balances, uh, checks and balances along the way, but it didn't fundamentally make sense, and it actually got to the point where um, I had a phone call from a particular. Um, provider who was doing this, and they actually had Lloyd's of London insure the uh, deduction from uh, Revenue Canada. So initially we had letters of assurances that was a particular law firm and a, an accounting firm who were specialized in this field saying, yes, this will meet uh, CRA's requirement. And uh, we looked at it and said, well, you know, if you're in doubt, you would hire these people. So is this actually just a marketing program for them? to drum up business in the event of disputes. So we were not comfortable with it. And then it, then we got the Lloyds of London um, uh, statement, and we actually called um, and uh, determined that it was actually the real Lloyds of London who was insuring this, um, and not two guys by the name of Lloyd in London, Ontario. So, uh, But still, it didn't pass the smell test, right? It, was, it just didn't make sense. And sure enough, uh, several years later, CRA did get around to auditing, and uh, everybody who had ever gone into the program. But again, it seemed to make sense. It was a logical system. It was people who were licensed. Uh, there was approvals uh, with various firms that, that you could uh, sell it. The, the, other, the other thing that, was, that raised my suspicion uh, on that particular program was that we were getting paid 7% commission for every client that went in there. So a client putting 100000 in, we would get paid $7,000 right away, right? Uh, right up front. And there was no disclosure of that to the client. Uh, there was disclosure in a document called a prospectus, and I keep joking that prospectus is a Latin word meaning document that nobody ever reads, right? So this was this was another classical uh, trap, and, and there have been different versions of that. There's one, another version of it, which is donate computers, right? That you, the bu- computers are bought wholesale, and then, um, then this batch of computers are donated 
um, uh, into two charities and given a tax receipt. So in each case, you have to have somebody who is familiar with it, knowledgeable enough to really understand what was happening there. Um, so these are the kind of instances where the average person does not have the knowledge, interest, or time in order to uh, facilitate, you know, to determine whether or not these things are indeed traps. So that's why I tend to focus on finding the right person. So could you explain to me the difference between a suitability responsibility and a fiduciary responsibility? 95% of the individuals that are working in our industry um, are, have a duty of care um, th that is called a suitability duty. So the suitability duty means is it suitable for this particular, uh, for a, a client to invest in a particular product. 5% of us have a fiduciary duty, which is, is it, the, is it this product the best for the client? So it's a slight, that slight difference can mean a lot um, in, in terms of um, is somebody looking out for you or are they looking out for the company? Now, that being said, don't eliminate everybody, right, because there's some fantastic advisors out there who um, ha are working under the suitability um, um, requirement. And the key here is find that person. Find that person that will do the financial plan for you, that, that at, when you're approached with various uh, programs and the like, that you can turn to them and say, I want you to look at this thing and tell me if this makes sense. What's the likelihood of recovering money that's lost in an investment trap? Uh, very, very low. So the industry uh, does have a complaint process uh, built in. So whenever um, there is well, uh, obvious fraud or ob obvious error or omission, there are um, uh, mechanisms that will provide for some, some recovery. But unfortunately, in many cases in the investment industry, one has to turn to the civil to the courts in order to recover uh, monies, um, and and there the 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 proof um, element, uh, and and let me say it wasn't the justice system; it's the legal system. So I really, because in many cases, legally somebody can be um, um, hard done by and not be able to recover, and that certainly isn't of any form of justice. Um, so. So it is much. It is very difficult to recover, if at all, because in many cases, the documents you sign uh, as part of these programs have gone through approval, and they have um, uh, been reviewed by lawyers. And as a consequence, uh, they unless you can find obvious problems um, that that either are outside of the documents themselves or some form of fraud, etc., then it's very difficult to recover any money. We we know of an instance, for example, back in in 2008, and I'm not telling anything tales out of school. It's part of a public record, where there was a gentleman who um, uh, was a former vacuum cleaner salesman who came into this business. And again, the barriers of entry to coming to our business have been increasing, but they're still really low. I mean, anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. There's no regulation in any province except Quebec. Uh, that's changing, but it hasn't changed yet. Um, but even those individuals who are first coming into the business basically can do one course, and then 60 days later, uh, after going through a period of, of um, training within-house, they can call themselves a financial advisor and help and, and handle 
um, individuals' long-term um, investments and savings and retirements. So it's really um, critical that individuals that are approaching you that you do interview them and under, understand what uh, they are offering and uh, who, who is behind them. So in the particular cases that we encountered after 2008, so this is this is the time that that uh, the heyday of the uh, borrow to invest uh, was probably uh, January through to May of 2008, because if you remember that period of time in Canada, we had uh, the price of oil was $145 a barrel. The place was booming. Um, the government deficits were falling, unemployment was down, housing prices were up, interest rates were low. Um, the Canadian dollar was a dollar fourteen to the U.S. So you know we could go across the border and buy all sorts of things and have fantastic vacations. Boy, things were just looking fantastic. And why could why wouldn't you invest? So this particular individual uh, persuaded a good number of in, uh, of um, uh, new customers uh, to invest where they borrowed. Um, for example, $100,000. They had they had $100,000 of their own savings. They took the money and, and put it into the market. Um, the presentations that were provided to uh, the new customers of his showed that if you had just done this five years ago, you would have all that money would have uh, all of your loans would be paid off. And in particular, if you picked the best mutual funds, which were the ones that went up the most in the previous five years, which turned out to be the riskiest ones then that would have given you even higher returns. And as a consequence, they bought in um, you know, March, April, May of 2008. The particular program that they went into, um, um, they, they, they invested in what was called the first sales charge. And the first sales charge meant that if you came out within a year, you were charged a fee of 5.5% on the original investment. The advisor got paid 5% up front. And that was disclosed in a prospectus. So uh, the stock market fell shortly after that and went down 50%. The bank called and said, you know, you borrowed $100,000 from us. You had $100,000 in. We don't mind when you lose your money, but now you're losing ours. And therefore, you had to put more money in than you uh, than, than is there now. Uh, so they panicked and they pulled out and then was charged five and a half percent on the original investment when they had ninety thousand dollars left. That's that's the kind of instance that we have there. So in in actually putting together the loans and actually putting together the investments, there were documents that had to be signed, and all those documents said yes, I fully understand what I'm involved with, and I am somebody who is competent and of sound mind and the like. And in, in the particular cases, there was there was one circumstance where the couple was in their seventies and one of the couple was blind. So in that particular case, it was considered to be an onerous uh, situation that was obvious that this person had no need for borrowing uh, because they had, uh, they, they, had, they had no compelling reason to try to uh, increase their, their wealth. Um, but it did go to court, and um, I don't believe that any settlement was ever, ever arose um, out of the circumstances. So... Uh, it's yeah, and and the same sort of thing with the art um, uh, donation uh, program that uh, in hindsight CRA uh, said no this is a um, this is not an acceptable deduction so denied deductions looking back five seven years in some cases which meant interest and penalties on top of the initial den- denial of the of the uh, the um, program and again because of the disclaimers it's very difficult to say you pay so that was why it was intriguing to see that. Uh, Lloyd's at London had come forward with a program. I don't know how they ever paid out 
or if indeed they ever did. So, um, so again, it's, it really comes back to you are going to be, you know, somebody will try to sell you this, and it's really important that ahead of time you um, make sure you're selective as to who you choose to be advising you on finances. It sounds like in the world of investment, it's still very much buyer beware. It is. It is. Uh, yes, and and that's why we came out with uh, the the ten questions to interview uh, someone who is who is going to be your investment advisor, because one of the biggest problems that we've seen is most people spend more time choosing the color of the refrigerator uh, for their kitchen than they do in selecting their investment advisor. So, Larry, what are the 10 questions that I should ask an advisor? Yeah, so the 10 questions are actually uh, a derivative of what the Financial Planning Standards Council of Canada has on their website of how to select an investment advisor. It's just we went a little bit deeper, okay? So you, you can find, if you go on the FPSC, which I hate the title, but Financial Planning Standards Council of Canada, um, who are responsible for the Chartered Financial Planning designation, uh, you'll find uh, their version of the questions. We went a little bit deeper. We went into um, uh, these ten. First one is, are you a fiduciary or are you a salesperson? And and understand 95% of the advisors in Canada are salespeople. So, th- so they have that suitability standard, not the standard which says that, that I must put the interests of my client ahead of my company and myself. So don't eliminate people simply because they are salespeople. Just be aware that they are constrained, that if you go into a particular bank and say, I want to invest in U.S. funds, it's going to be the bank's mutual fund that you're going to be investing in. Or if I want to invest in Europe, it's going to be that insurance company's European fund that you're dealing with. But just heads up. The second one is um, what services do you offer and how often will we meet? And that has nothing to do with any bank requirement or the like. It is you want to understand, is somebody going to be just doing stocks or are they going to be just doing mutual funds or are they going to be doing insurance products? And are you going to be met once and then you'll never, ever see them again, right? So you, you just need to understand ahead of time. And whenever you're going through these questions, it's uh, you always are looking for the squirm factor. So uh, in many cases, many advisors in Canada have never been asked these questions. And if you see them squirm, then that tells you a lot about. So it's one thing for them to say, but I've got a punchline at the end that really encompasses all of this thing uh, quite strongly. So see how, how you know. So understand what what are the other services? Are they going to do financial planning? Are they going to do full financial planning? Are you going to be meeting on a regular basis? Are you going to be checking back with them, uh, etc.? So you want to know about that ahead of time. The third one is, are you going to be the only person working with me? So are there other people that I can talk to? And what happens if you go on vacation when I have an emergency? So that's a real key question. And there's nothing wrong with standalone financial advisors, as long as you know ahead of time that this is what you're going to be involved with, right? So you can see that the vast majority of people choose their financial advisor based on who they know. So it's their uncle, their cousin, or, or something. And in fact, one of the biggest disasters you could make is choosing a family member. And I keep telling that to my family, but they won't listen. Choosing a family member, because if a mistake is made and somebody has got to own up, it's really hard to fire a family member or your best buddy that you're playing hockey with or um, you know the, your, your niece is just coming into the business. So you had to be very careful and if, if, if indeed that you are going to... to um, hire those people, you need to go to this interview here to be sure that they are indeed um, not um, uh, 
prevailing upon you as being a friend or a, a relative or the like, and that they will fulfill their obligations. Then, um, so, um, are you going to be the only person working with me? Um, and find out, and, and, and uh, if that's the case, then, then just take that into consideration. The, one of the big ones, though, is this one here, which is, what are all the fees that I will be charged? So in Canada in particular, there's a really big problem because people don't really understand fees. We've had people who've come to us and said, we've never been charged a fee in our life. I said, yes, you have. You just have never seen it because we have something called embedded fees. So the embedded fees are, particularly in mutual funds, are fees that are charged by the mutual fund itself. Um, so you don't see them directly. If the mutual fund has earned 6%, then the average mutual fund to you, that is that you earned 6% on uh, your money last year from a mutual fund, the average fund in Canada is charging between 2.6% and 2.8%. So it means that the mutual fund actually earned 8.6 or 8.8%, took 26 to 2.8% uh, to pay for the fund itself, plus the trading fees, so whatever the trading costs were, um, in order to uh, and, and in order to render you six, so you just want to know that. And there has been some movement by the regulators in order to do this, in order to provide that disclosure. But even that often says, "Here's how much the advisor gets paid, not how much the entire fee is." And there may be additional fees such as RSP, trustee fees, tax-free savings account trustee fees. Um, um, RIF fees. I mean, there might be other fees in addition to that. You want to know what all those fees are ahead of time so that you can make a comparison and, and, and to see, is this reasonable? Um, along with that, some, sometimes these fees are tax deductible, which is just a gem. I mean, we'd love to have that because uh, anytime you can, you can save on, on taxes, then, then you're away to the races. So just want to understand what that is. And that often causes people to squirm. The advisors to squirm because again not everybody is saying what are all the fees they just say what are the fees involved and uh, so it's, it's a key question to be asking um, then from there is uh, the next question is are you regulated by any organization so you want to know um, it, are they a, they a member of the mutual fund dealers association MFDA are they a member of IROC, Investment Industry uh, Regulatory uh, Authority of Canada, right? Um, so you want to know, are they regulated or is it an, um, another insurance uh, arm that's regulating them? And you can then go in on the, the regulatory website and see any complaints about this person, right? Now, it doesn't mean that there can't be complaints. I mean, you, the average surgeon in Canada has four complaints over a 20-year period. Um, so everybody makes mistakes, but how, how are the mistakes amended and how are they fixed and how are they taken care of? So you want to know, know this ahead of time. So how, you know, is the person uh, regulated by an organization? Then what experience do you have? And what you want to know there is, you know, are you starting to learn the, this business based on my money? Are you new to the business? Have you been here for a period of time? And in the past, we always wanted to see somebody who had at least five years' experience because usually that took them through one full business cycle. They actually saw the market go up and the market go down. Now, we haven't seen that in 10 years, remember? So, you know, you'd prefer to have somebody with long-term experience um, that, you, that you can see and understand what's, what's uh, happening with them, okay? Uh, the next one is how will I pay for your services? So is it, is it, am I going to pay you a fee up front? Am I going to pay you a fee monthly? Or am I getting paid from the investments that you make uh, for me? So if you're going to get paid from the investments that, that, that you make for me, are all of the investments that you're going to make for me get, paying you the same? 
Or is the specialty fund that's invested in private wealth, is that going to pay you more? Or is it going to be an art for donation program that's going to pay you 7% up front that I may not see? Now, again, whenever, whenever these, the discussions about fees and expense, you know, costs and that sort of thing come up, often they say, well, it's in the prospectus. Again, we're back to that document that nobody ever reads. So I've got a punchline coming up for that. Um, do you have a sales quota to meet? So years ago, I was a branch manager um, uh, for uh, TD Waterhouse. Um, I was asked to hire 10 advisors, um, and those advisors had to raise $30 million within three years, $30 million to manage. People had to trust them with $30 million at the end of three years in order for them to stay in the business. Uh, if they didn't, their quota wasn't met, and they were asked to leave. So um, in the same way, an individual you're talking to, uh, do they have a quota or do they have a contract you know, where that gives them a bonus? Do they qualify for a trip if they open the account? Now, I didn't say if they earn a better rate of return for you. It said if they open the account. So, again, you want to know if there's any conflicts of interest there. Is the reason why you're going to put me in this bigger investment is you're going to get paid more? I need to know that ahead of time. So that goes back to what all the fees are and how, how do I get, you get paid. Um, and then the last one was is the real kicker, which is I'd like to have all these answers in writing, in plain English, small words, and on your company letterhead. And of all of the, the questions, this one causes the most squirming, the most uh, concern, and the sweat to break out on the brow. Because in most cases, people, um, salespeople will say, here is the brochure. And the brochure is usually in six font with the fine print down in, you know, two, three font. You that, God bless you, you're going to get that anyway. That's going to come to you as part of a normal account opening process. But, but if you ask for the answer to these questions in writing on company letterhead, you may see people say, well, I have to get the approval of my branch manager. And you say, great. I'm delighted that no. And by the way, who is your branch manager, and who do they report to? And it's and it's really interesting when you keep saying who do they report to, how far you've got to go in the organization before you get to the to the titles. So you got your branch manager, and then you have your regional manager, and then usually you have your um, uh, district manager, and then you at some point you hit your national sales manager, which is always a very telling. Um, circumstance about what is the orientation of the company that you're dealing with. And it's fine. Or again, just be aware that that's the orientation that the vast majority of advisors work under. So so you do want the branch manager to sign off because that gives more authority. But the key part, the reason why you're asking for this is that, and, and it might take some time to do it, but anybody who refuses to give it to you, then you know right away. You don't want to deal with that person. And, I, I, and no matter how rel- close the relatives or how much of recommendation that you, you have from others, because people will n- very, very rarely lie to you in writing. If you get these answers out and a dispute arises in the future, then you have a document that you can go back with and say, here's what I was told, right? And I have a signature here, and it's on the letterhead of the company. So it's not the person that you're dealing with now who's liable. It's the company's letterhead. So, so that's the sort of key. So, so if you can put, find that wonderful individual who is upfront and straightforward in telling you the answers to these things, then you move away from a lot of the, the problems that often arise in the industry where people say, this is not what I understood or that's not what, was, what I was expected or it's not what I was told. So how does the fee and licensing disclosure and all the things that we've been you've just explained yeah. how does that in Canada compare to what happens in the rest of the world? 
so the, usually the the evolution in our industry usually starts in Britain and then goes to um, Australia, um, the United States, and then Canada. So it's, it was an evolution, right? So mutual funds first started out with Dundee in Scotland, um, one of the first mutual funds in, in, in existence. Um, and the uh, a major change happened a couple of years ago in Britain where they said – you must expose all of your fees, and they're and they're having challenges with this. And I mean, severe challenges with it. So, subsequent to the change in Britain, um, then Canada is now starting to disclose the fees. But but uh, and there's a report that usually comes out in January of every year that says, um, here is the rate of return that you have earned. Here is it compared to an index, usually the Toronto stock market um, or bond market, depending on what you're in. And here is the fee that was paid paid to your advisor. So it's not all the fees, right? So, the, so it is most of the fees, or, or a decent part of the fees, but not all of them. In addition to that, Canada pays uh, Canadians pay the highest fees of any uh, place in the world. Now, there are some exceptions we have seen in the Caribbean, for example, some fees there that were not exposed. And, and as an accountant, I was able to find the fees. But it took a while because they were charged off as either trustee fees or maintenance fees or management fees or the like. But for the run-of-the-mill mutual funds, Canada is paying certainly some of the highest fees in the world. Do you see that changing in any time soon? Uh, competition always changes it to a degree. And so the, the impact of, of what happened in Britain was uh, when they first came out and said you have to expose all the fees – then a lot of investment advisors just said, I'm quitting. So a circumstance set up where um, individuals who did not have uh, very much money, they had maybe you know, $25,000, $35,000, they were not getting serviced because no one would take them on as a client. So, and in many cases, um, advisors who are experienced, knowledgeable, who have processes in place, degrees, designations, and are meeting all the requirements, have minimum account size. Right. So, so, and and understandably so, because it simply doesn't make any sense to uh, open up an account for thirty thousand dollars if you're going to end up charging the person a minimum fee of three thousand dollars a year. Um, so, so um, the impact of um, the fact that fee, full field disclosure happened was that uh, some people chose not to uh, stay in the industry because they could not make uh, money. That's where we're getting robo-advisors coming in because robo-advisors then um, can charge a very, very small amount of fees. You do most of the work yourself, and it will keep you within the, the uh, parameters of somewhat reasonableness, um, but you don't get the personal attention, obviously. You're dealing with an algorithm, and the algorithm is making helping you make the decisions for you. Um, but when you, you know, we have circumstances where clients will not buy a car without calling us. So they'll call up and, and say, how do uh, my, my child is uh, moving back from um, uh, living away. Can you meet with them to do financial plans? And that's very detailed and specific, right? So it's a different circumstance. But the net effect is that there is more fee disclosure. There is impact uh, from it. Um, there's debate uh, about it um, in, in extreme. But for you individually, for anybody uh, listening, um, you do want to know what those fees are and uh, whether those things are reasonable and how they are charged. Thank you very much. I have one final question to ask, which I've been asking everybody that I've talked to. Um, 
Stories are always good. Mm. Have you ever made a financial decision that you've regretted? Oh. And what did you learn from that? Oh, I've made uh, many financial decisions um, that, that I've regretted. Um, the, um, uh, I didn't buy uh, Microsoft when it first came out. I didn't buy um, Amazon when it first came out. Uh, but I think in terms of classical decisions, um, I, you know, each of us have, have our own circumstances. And in my particular case, I'm diabetic. So I was told when I, uh, 41 years ago that I would not live beyond age 40, maybe 45, because the technology back then was pretty awful. And uh, so I delayed um, purchasing a house for a long, long time. But I um, had a diagnosis checkup there uh, six months ago that said, for the first time in my life, I will have normal life expectancy. Fabulous. That is absolutely fabulous. But then that makes me look back and go, whew, I should have bought that house earlier. So, I mean, we all, you know, n- no one is perfect, and everybody has their own, their own path that, they, uh, that they, they go through in their own circumstances. Um, it's, in, in our particular industry, the key is not to uh, run into one of these investment traps that can completely derail your financial circumstances, that if you're reaching that far, um, in order to make the big bet, um, you uh, in the hopes that it will pay off, then you have the question: Do you need to? And if you don't, then don't. You know, I think one of the the impacts of having the discussion yesterday, we got sidetracked of talking about the stock market and business cycles. And, and I think you made a comment that somebody said, "Well, I'm never, I'm going to sell all of my stocks." Well, that's not the real answer. The real answer is go and talk to your investment advisor and see what is the most suitable thing for you at this particular point in time. Uh, because it's not the case, you know, in the old, in the old, old days it was um, buy and hold because the stock market would always recover. The volatility we're seeing now causes people to worry. And, and when they worry and they lose sleep and they wake up um, with the stock market down, you know, as it was in 2008, down 50%, they sell, which is the absolute worst thing they could possibly do. So, so your business plan should assume that there's going to be a 50% stock market fall at some point in your life, at least two, maybe three times. And if your business plan says that you will not stay invested when that happens, then you should not be in stocks, right? So in the same way that people look back and in regret, they said, you know, I did sell in 2008, um, or I did sell in... 2003, then you have to, to look at it and say, what, what should you have done? Well, the lesson was that I should have bought, okay? And when should you have sold? I should have sold when those headlines were glorious, when everything looks fantastic, or at least taken some money off the table. So, yeah, I've got regrets. Um, um, always have. Um, and kick myself about, about it, but that's one of the reasons why I have a team behind me who sometimes says, you can't be perfect. We're not. We're not looking for saints in 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 the investment business. We're looking for individuals that care. Well, thank you very much. It's been wonderful talking to you. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. For more information and resources, visit our website at cpacanada.ca slash financial literacy. For more episodes, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. Podbean.